Welcome, and thanks for joining us for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we will be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and in their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed to provide community support to adult and child survivors rather than relying on a putative response. We prioritize guidance that advances equity and removes barriers to the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by institutions and systems and towards supports that center survivors and their families and communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and our practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these shorts to engage in discussions in your organizations. I'm your host, Surabi Kuke. Let's dive in. Okay, welcome, Hema and Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us. I would love to start by inviting you both to introduce yourselves, where you are, who you're with, and what you do there. So can I ask you, Hema, to begin? Sure. Thank you so much. I'm Hema Sarn Siminski. Nayushi and they pronouns, and I am the policy director of Jane Doe Inc., JDI, which is the Massachusetts Coalition Against Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence. Awesome. Adrian? And my name is Adrian Ramtran. I use she, her, and I'm the policy coordinator at JDI. Wonderful. I'm so glad we're getting to do this. So today, I really want to hear about your process uh, around both the the interventions you did, you made at the legislative level around mandatory reporting and the sort of coalition and community building you did around it. And I know that other coalitions have a lot to learn about how and why we do these things. So I'd love to start by just asking you a general question around what did you do and sort of why, what propelled you? What was your uh, motivation to go in this direction? Sure, I'll kick this off. I think the where we started was actually backtracks a little to the conversations that I think many coalitions started to have about, you know, our reliance on criminal legal system responses. What does that mean? To what extent are we over-relying on systems that cause harm to BIPOC communities? And I think through some of those conversations, we started to have some critical conversations as a as a coalition to to really unpack what that what that could mean for our work going forward. And you know, a lot of our conversations were really focusing on policing, and the question of child welfare definitely did arise. It was brought to us by a couple member programs who said, you know, when are we going to take this on? Can we talk about the impact of child welfare systems and I think that, you know, planted a seed for both Adrian and I, um, who are certainly aware of the disproportionate impact on communities of color, on survivors of color, by these systems, but it hadn't quite intersected in our work uh, as a coalition mm. up until that point, at least, you know, at that point where we were in our in our tenure at, at JDI. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
You know, through some conversations with some legislative allies, we actually learned about this initiative that was being proposed in Massachusetts to dramatically increase mandatory reporting categories. And I think that certainly gave both of us pause. And, you know, we were both surprised that we hadn't heard about this initiative up until then and very interested in joining the coalition efforts that were happening. And these were really other child welfare advocates who were part of some of those um, conversations and really kind of kicked off a several months long process of organizing to oppose these pretty significant expansions of mandatory reporting. Mm -hmm. So when you say you didn't know it was happening, can you say a little more like what what should other colleagues in other states be paying attention to? Like if these things are underway in their communities and their states? I think, you know, it to us in reflecting on some of how we came into this process and what we would recommend for other mm-hmm. coalitions. I mean, we certainly had relationships with the domestic violence advocacy components of our our child welfare system, which is DCF here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. But that said, you know, I think it highlighted some places where we could really deepen some of our relationships with, you know, the, the range of folks who are working with young people who are impacted by these systems, families who are impacted by these systems. And I think it was a gap there. So Mm. it came as a surprise to us that there was this fairly organized coalition of advocates who were already aware of this and trying to slow these efforts down. And, you know, the absence of the state coalition in those conversations was, was significant. So yeah. And if I can just add to that, I'll even highlight, I think it pointed to a gap in Hema mentioned that we were sort of aware of these conversations in terms of our work around you know, shift and reliance on the, the criminal legal system, but hadn't really taken a deep dive into the child welfare system. And I think in part because of that, we weren't aware of the legislation that created this commission either. Mm-hmm. So part of it is having those connections with the child advocacy organizations in your state. But I think if we had been a little bit more plugged into looking at the child welfare as a system as policing survivors and the harm that it's causing in Massachusetts, I think we might have been also a little more plugged into the legislation that was happening at that time and aware that this commission existed also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, if I could just yeah. add to that really please, quickly. Please. What's awesome. so I mean, I think what's so interesting about it is, you know, it's a it's a lesson that I, I'm sure so many other coalitions learn every day or experience every day, the way in which issues related to sexual assault and domestic violence are often used to move policy shifts and changes for Mm -hmm. a number of reasons in a number of ways, whether or not they align with, you know, a survivor-centered and survivor-led approach. And, you know, actually the origin of this commission was really an outgrowth of the, the sexual abuse uh, scandals regarding Ali Raisman, um, other gymnasts. So that was really the origin story of this commission. And even to recognize the extent to which the state coalition was not 
you know, consulted with or incorporated (laughs) into that particular conversation is significant. That is so interesting. So who, I I guess this, you're starting to already say this, but who did you feel was important to involve in your process? Like as you, as this kind of came into focus for you, what kind of coalition building needed to happen? What did it look like for you at the coalition? I think as we partnered with these organizers, for, they, they were called the Children's Law Support Project. Okay. Um, it was kind of a growing, we were growing our kind of place in this, orga- in this organizing effort as, mm-hmm. as, as an entity that was interested not solely in survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault, but also children. Right? Yeah. And I think that that piece has been unfortunately siloed and has gotten increasingly, I don't know, is that there's been a, a distancing between, you know, our field as a whole and, and the world of child welfare mm-hmm. practitioners. And so, so part of it was really, you know, establishing ourselves as a group that would very much um, be interested in speaking to the impact of the system on not solely survivors of sexual assaults and domestic violence, but, you know, communities as a whole, communities of color, uh, you know, young folks. And, and so that was that was an important, um, you know, bridge building, really, mm-hmm. with, with this entity. And then I think internally, um, maybe, Adrian, you could talk a little bit about our process. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. You mentioned, you know, how JDI wasn't brought into the conversation mm-hmm. when this commission was created out of the Larry Nasser case. So I think it was important for us that we made sure our member programs were involved and that we were bringing in the voices of the SDV agencies in Massachusetts and partly for us to have an opportunity to share with them that this is what's happening in the state, but really as an opportunity to get their feedback and their input. What are you seeing? How would these potential changes that are being outlined by the commission, how would it impact the survivors? that you're working with and really making sure that the the comments that we were able to bring back to the Children's Law Support Project, the comments we were able to submit to the commission, that they were really embodying the voices of advocates in Massachusetts, making sure that we are really, um, um, the changes that we were proposing or the feedback that we're proposing, they're not just done from JDI sort of making these assumptions of what's happening, mm-hmm. which I think is what's so often done to us as a coalition, making assumptions of what survivors want in the state, but really that it's being driven by by the voices of the advocates and that they're having an opportunity to weigh in. Because this is not only going to impact the survivors that they work with, but it's impacting their their very own work and what they're able mm-hmm. to do and provide for survivors. So being able to hold those couple of different listening sessions with advocates throughout this whole process. So that, that was right. really important for us. Right. There's so much to learn from the people most directly connected to families, adult and child survivors. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Emma? I was going to ask. I was just going to add. I mean, I think you know, as 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 a state coalition, I mean, we hold a lot of relationships with systems, and you know, unfortunately, when this commission was created, one one miss was really to only have system stakeholders as part of that particular commission that was evaluating or the task force evaluating mandatory reporting expansion. You know, that said, so. 
there was the advocacy voice that was sort of operating parallel to and mm-hmm. organizing, you know, kind of outside of that formal commission. That said, as a coalition, we have a lot of, we are in fact charged with having many close relationships with system actors. So, you know, what in terms of coalition building, one piece that we really wanted to ensure that we retained was, you know, making sure our contacts within uh, DCF, for example, um, whether it was through the domestic violence liaison role, were aware that this was a position we were taking, that this was Mm -hmm. something that we were particularly interested in, that we were looking at it from the perspective of harm to, you know, survivors and communities at large. Um, But it was important to have those conversations as well, because we always want to ask, you know, the the big who needs to know, (laughs) who needs to know what we are working on, what are any unintended consequences, you know, those yeah. Sort of foundation to policy work. Always, like, people deserve the information that affects them, too. Basic feminist practice. <laughs> um, but I, so actually that leads me to a question about what do you wish you had done differently or or any any lessons learned and any surprises, happy or otherwise, that, like, partners, outcomes, strategies that you identified? I think. As far as lessons learned or things we wish we could have done differently, I mean, I think, you know, it's almost, you know, hindsight, in Mm -hmm. hindsight, wishing that these relationships had been even, had been solidified years ago, right? That Mm -hmm. That there not be these kinds of ruptures between bodies of work that are so profoundly interrelated and and you know to well there is always the capacity question of how many places can you be at one point (laughs) and you know how does a small staff um you know be in conversation with all of the systems that impact the lives of survivors you know what could we have done differently to make sure that our relationship wasn't just with the domestic violence component of this agency, but with the agency as a whole. So that's one piece of it. But also in terms of advocacy relationships, you know, while we might have listed many partners and allies as advocacy groups, you know, the the absence of a significant child welfare advocacy, mm. um, folks working with youth, mm-hmm. right? Partnering with yeah. um, advocacy organizations that work with youth, that is um, something that I think you know, we will certainly look to cultivating mm-hmm. more of that. Mm-hmm. How about surprises, things that you didn't expect? I think a surprise was, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, the level of enthusiasm and engagement mm-hmm. to talk mm-hmm. about this issue. And that it felt like this was a conversation. We had a fairly large turnout to a you know, yet another Zoom call uh-huh. um, on this, on, uh, of many, um, but on this topic and, um, and and a lot of engagement. And so I think that that for us, you know, it pointed to the need to really address this issue as a coalition and that there are probably a number of different avenues from our prevention work to, 
these conversations we're having more recently about shifting our reliance on criminal legal systems, mm-hmm. you know, to a you know, general kind of how are we operating as residential providers? What does that look like? Sort of how do we integrate these these topics um, about mandatory reporting, about you know child welfare interventions, practices? Can we share wisdom across the coalition on you know how folks are navigating these really complex and yeah, um, yeah complex topics? Excellent, excellent. Okay, last question. What are two of the most important things about your process that you would want your colleagues to know that would help them if they were to try working in this direction to do something like you you did? I will start with trust in the fact that there are likely many individuals within the coalition who are eager to jump into this conversation in this context. I think that is lesson one. Mm, You mean among your member organizations? Among member Mm -hmm. organizations. Yeah, among member organizations that there is a lot of interest in, you know, taking on these questions of how we're doing our work, who it impacts, what our roles are Mm -hmm. in as they intersect with child welfare systems. I think that's one big takeaway, um, that there is interest and a desire for coalition leadership mm-hmm. in, in having those kind of conversations, both internally as well as with systems. So let's not underestimate. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, the importance of listening, I think, to your coalition members, to the advocates, especially mm-hmm. who were at your member programs, that I think has proved so useful for us in this work specifically, but in all forms of legislation or systems change work that we do, really listening to the advocates who are working with the survivors every day and caring and listening to what they are seeing as the the challenges that survivors are facing mm-hmm. in in your state. And I think trusting that it's okay for the process to move a little slow in terms of taking the time to hold those conversations and have those conversations with your members before engaging with the legislators or engaging with the commission or whoever it is that's attempting to make changes to a mandatory reporting law law or the child welfare system in your state. I think that's a lesson that we've learned through this as well. Sometimes taking that time to slow down can result in the outcome that you're looking for sometimes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was rich. Yes. I, um, yeah, and it's it's a beautiful model of how po- state-level policy advocates like yourselves can like really build community with local domestic violence advocates who are more on the programmatic end to ri- enrich each other's efforts, you know? I mean, I think obviously at the policy level, you're trying to amplify what advocates are learning, unpacking, discussing, um, but this is one more way and place to do this. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think your colleagues around the country will benefit from this conversation and we will be sharing the outcomes of your process and the guidance resources on our website. And we look forward to talking more. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. 
If you think there is work going on in your community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That's thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Email us with information about your effort and we'll be sure to reach out to you. Special thanks to Chance Taylor for his support in editing these shorts. Thanks again for joining us.